0: Alrighty. Um, well, it is six thirty-five. Reckon we're about ready to kick off.
1: Twenty fourteen will go down as the warmest year
2: around the globe in recorded history. Twenty
0: fifteen was the hottest year since climate records
3: began.
4: Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent.
2: The rate is a great concern. And what do you so. put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have
3: the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource.
0: Welcome, everyone, again. My name is Anna Langford, and I'll be emceeing tonight. I'm a campaigner at Act on Climate. Yeah, we are all here for the launch of the People's Climate Strategy for Victoria. So it's really exciting to have you all here. Of course, I wish that I could be in a big room with you all making it work. And it's nice to still see all your lovely faces. Tonight, we're going to be hearing from a bunch of amazing people and talking through how we can make this massive plan that we want to pull off work over the next few months in Victoria, part of our effort to make Victoria the national leader on climate action. Before we do that, I would like to pass over to one of our speakers, Neil Morris, for an Acknowledgement of Country tonight.
5: I pay respects to this land that I'm standing on at the moment, which is the land of the Wurundjeri people. I acknowledge that their sovereignty has not been ceded. I acknowledge that their culture is still continuing. Their law is still continuing. And these things are crucial for them, but they are crucial for all of us. And as a guest, myself as well. As a Yorta Yorta man, and also from extended uh, relations of the Kulin nation of the Dja Rorang people, I'm very grateful to be walking upon this land and acknowledge that there is a footprint with my activity in walking here. It is a footprint that has been affected in ways which are also colonial, as I walk through in this contemporary society that we are all thrust upon in this bizarre time of the world where there are so many challenges on so many fronts and challenges that are constant. But we can remember how special it is that This is a land of an indigenous people. It is a land where sacredness is valued. It is a land that is considered sacred by the custodians of this land. As a guest of this land, I consider it those things. And again, I'm grateful to be here. And I do acknowledge all of your ancestors as well within the lands that you're standing upon and all of the stories, all of the amazing law that has upheld ways of life has upheld symbiosis within all of those amazing parts of this country whether it's upon one of the indigenous nation lands of so-called australia or whether it's on another indigenous land from somewhere else in the world indigenous activity and connection to country is ongoing it is crucial it is important right now in this moment as much as any moment that's passed and it will be important just as much In any moment that we go into in the future. So, again, Nangana Mulana, Yembana, Yakubna, I pay respect to this land and I acknowledge the ancestors of this land and the ongoing connection of the current representatives of this land, which is the Burundi land of the Kulala Nation people.
0: Thank thank you so much, Neil, for that and you'll you'll be hearing from Neil again in a moment. Uh, I would also just like to acknowledge that today is Mabo Day to commemorate land rights activist Eddie Mabo's long fight that led to the um, landmark overturning of the legal fiction of Terra Nullius that this land was colonised on the basis of. And uh, at Friends of the Earth We note the ongoing struggles of First Nations people and know that we can't tackle the climate crisis without working to dismantle the ongoing colonialism and its impacts in this country, and that we must centre that as part of all our work, including for this climate strategy. So, Act on Climate, um, we've been campaigning for three years now to make Victoria the national leader on climate action, and this year in March, of course, as we were all locking down our campaign for science-based emissions reduction targets culminated in a big online push for um, Victorian climate ambition. Soon after the Vic government set those targets, the next stage for them is to write this detailed state climate strategy to enact the plan to cut emissions. And that will determine the level of ambition for our state over the next decade, which, as we know, is the crucial decade that we have to act on climate. But of course, the situation we find ourselves in is that the government is dealing with a pandemic and um, truly has its hands full. So what we thought we'd do is take the climate strategy off their hands and throw it to the community so that we can write it. Of course, the plan was to go old school with, you know, town hall meetings all over the state, getting the butcher's paper out but it's looking like we'll have to meet in this manner for a while longer, which is okay. You know, already figuring out lots of innovative ways to do it. Really excited about it. It's going to be like a big experimental exercise in participatory democracy over the next few months. And it's so exciting to have you all here as part of kicking that off. And so tonight we're going to talk about how we can make this plan work. And we've got five amazing speakers who are going to talk us through the plan and offer different perspectives on how to ensure that the strategy is robust, capable of getting us to zero emissions ASAP and leaves no Victorian behind. And then after that, we're going to have a Q&A. If you are posting or tweeting about this event tonight, the hashtag you can use is Vic Climate Solutions. Um, And also, if you want to get the attention of Victorian politicians, you can do hashtag Spring Street. And finally, I'll just let you know that we also have a tip jar, which will be posted in the chat too, putting on this event for free for you all tonight, Friends of the Earth. You know, we're we're a grassroots organisation that is funded by community members. Um, Of course, it is looking like we're going to be heading into rougher financial times ahead due to the pandemic. So Now I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Lee Eubank, our passionate and indefatigable campaign coordinator at Act on Climate. Um, He's a big inspiration to all of us and Lee is going to give us the context of how the strategy came about and talk us through the plan, sort of give us a bird's eye past, present and future of climate action at the state level in Victoria.
2: G'day everyone, so good to be here tonight. You know, I kind of wish it was a uh, a town hall somewhere. This is gonna have to do. Before I begin, I would like to just acknowledge that I'm coming to you from Wurundjeri land um, in Preston. Um, this is stolen land and we acknowledge always that um, sovereignty was never ceded. Um, so just a little bit about me and friends of the earth. So, Um, I've been at Friends of the Earth Melbourne since 2012, so coming up on on a good eight years. And one of the things that has really stood out to me over my time at Friends of the Earth is just how central the community is to everything that we do. And that goes all the way back to Friends of the Earth's inception um, 45 years ago, where community members rallied to resist and stop a nuclear power plant from being built on French island in Victoria. So throughout the years I've worked with communities from Portland, you know, wind workers, communities in central Victoria, who were fighting for wind farms and every other type of community in between. So we do have a bit of a problem at the moment. It's not going to be a shock to anyone, but when it comes to tackling the climate crisis, When it comes to cutting emissions and protecting communities from climate impacts, the federal coalition has been a major roadblock. You know, since Tony Abbott took the opposition um, from Malcolm Turnbull and formed a coalition government back in 2013, we've seen attack after attack on renewable energy and on programs that help us tackle climate change. And as a result, for the last six years, we've seen emissions increasing and it's highly unlikely that we will actually be able to deliver our international commitments to the Paris Climate Agreement and it's only this year that emissions have finally started to plateau by a very meagre 0.9 of a percent so we do have a lot of work to do but at the state level we do have a very different story to tell so in Victoria we do have good news Um, emissions are down and by the end of the year they should be down below 2005 levels by around 20 percent so we are actually showing a great deal of of leadership um, in the country and um, we, we do have momentum so you know why is this happening it's happening because of successful community campaigns in the last few years, over the last decade, we've seen in Victoria a successful campaign to ban fracking. So over 74 communities across the state of Victoria rallied together. Um, They surveyed their own communities and they declared themselves time and time again frack free. The power was so resounding that the, the Liberal Party, the National Party, the Labor Party and the Greens all voted for a permanent ban on fracking, and we became the first state in Australia to do so. We've also seen the legislation of a renewable energy target for Victoria after a very long and hardworking campaign um, that saw wind workers putting their voice into the debate at the state level. Communities such as Euroa and Yakindanda and Hepburn Springs and others, really calling for the government to match the community's level of ambition. And as a result, we ended up with a renewable energy target that would quadruple the amount of renewables in the state by 2025, uh, create 12,000 jobs and um, deliver billions of dollars worth of investment to the state. And lastly, we've seen over the years a a great deal of effort go towards a movement-wide campaign to, to transition Hazelwood Um, away from, sorry, to transition Hazelwood to renewable energy, so replacing Hazelwood, the coal power plant, with renewables. Um, And, you know, it was only two weeks ago or a week ago that we saw, um, you know, the end of an era as those um, uh, towers were finally demolished. So the current opportunity before us, um, since 2017, the Act on Climate Collective at Friends of the Earth, you know, we've been you know, leading a bit of a community campaign for the state government to set science-based emissions reduction targets. And there is this question mark around the level of ambition that the government will take to targets for cutting emissions by 2025 and 2030. But we've been really clear and consistent with the government that we need the targets to be based on the science and we need the targets to keep Victoria below 1.5 degrees of global warming. Given the pandemic, we have seen changes to the parliamentary schedule, which has actually pushed out the time um, that we're expecting the government to make an announcement. So the government has 10 parliamentary sitting days to make an announcement on the emissions targets. And according to the current calendar, that puts it at around August 6. But you know we're not gonna sit idly and wait for the targets to be announced. We're gonna get cracking on the next phase of our campaign the Victorian government is required by law to create and prepare a climate strategy for the state by October 31. And, um, yeah, given that there is a strong focus on COVID and the response, both in terms of public health and economics, you know, we want to make sure that this strategy gets the attention that it deserves. So we thought, why don't we write it? Why doesn't, you know, let's let's get the community together and let's write this plan So we're taking the climate strategy off the government's plate. We're going to shape the first climate strategy and we're going to deliver it to the government. So in terms of the strategy, it's worth just having a little bit of a look over what it does. So the Climate Change Act, this meaty document here that I've read way too many times establishes that the strategy has to set out how the state will cut emissions and how it will deal with climate impacts. Um, The strategy is for the next five years and every five-year period of time after that the government is required to report on the effectiveness of the previous strategy and to write a fresh one. The strategy must include adaptation measures, emissions reduction measures, And a clear statement of priorities for the state. And in some good news, um, the climate strategy has to adhere to the objectives and the guiding principles of the Climate Act, which include support for vulnerable communities, promoting social justice and intergenerational equity, and to adopt measures that are in proportion to the problem. And when you think about what's at stake and the state of the climate science, We do need to see a heavy lift from the victorian government so what we want to do um i'm really pleased that we've got marco balamo later on to talk through the timeline and how we're going to approach this development of a people's climate strategy from a bit of an eagle eye view what we're going to do in coming months we're going to need your help we're going to be forming regional working groups we really want to tap in and harness the local knowledge that communities have. Um, We wanna understand the impacts that you're facing and the the strengths and opportunities for your region when it comes to cutting emissions. Uh, We wanna generate a community list of priorities that we can use to help set the bar for the government about what we think the priorities for the state climate policy should be. And it will give us this ability to compare and contrast the final product that they come up with Obviously, within Friends of the Earth, we have a commitment to several principles. So firstly, we wanna make sure that this strategy is capable of, of achieving zero emissions as soon as possible. We wanna enhance community resiliency to climate impacts, such as the communities that we're working with already um, down in Invelock, where we've seen dramatic impacts of sea level rise um, and communities in Tanagala, where there is a concern about bushfire risk and others. Uh, we also want to make sure that this community climate strategy puts climate justice front and center. So we want to take an approach where no one is left behind and that communities get the support they need. And also that you know when it comes to climate policy, um, we don't see inadvertent adverse impacts on on various groups, whether it's first Nations people, Um, young people, uh, people with disabilities and others. And finally, you know, given that we are in in a pandemic and, you know, we're expecting to have quite an economic shock, we do want to make sure that, um, you know, the the ideas that we generate for Victoria's climate strategy really help um, create jobs and help provide communities with the support they need to, to weather Um, the economic shockwaves of the pandemic. So that's a little bit of an eagle-eye view. Um, I hope I've managed to stick to time. I just wanted to say before you hear from the amazing speakers that we've got coming up um, that I'm really pleased that Neil Morris, um, Kate Auti and Mark Oag are here joining us tonight. They are a huge inspiration to me and it's a real privilege and honour to work with you in the push for climate justice. So thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Lee. Um, I think you just summed up a lot of the best parts of being at Friends of the Earth that keep so many community members as part of our big foe family. Um, And I miss being with you all um, at our scrappy office in Fitzroy, but also getting out to communities all over the state and doing that really inspiring grassroots work and thank you also for explaining those nitty-gritty parts of the state climate policy that can you know often sound a bit abstract and far from reality but they have real world impacts and if we show the government that we're paying attention and expect good ambitious outcomes then we can win big change from them. like to introduce the wonderful Kate orty Kate is the former Commissioner of Environmental Sustainability for Victoria and the ACT and after being the Victorian Commissioner for five years under the Napthine government Kate resigned in protest because she wasn't allowed to use the phrase climate change. So Kate is a real national treasure and um, a Legend to all of us at Friends of the Earth, and we're really excited to hear from you. So over to you, Kate. Hey, thanks,
1: thanks Anna. Um, that's a heavy load. I have to say before I do anything else, just hello to Neil and acknowledging all the Yorta Yorta women who've been powerful influences in my life and enriched my life. And I just want to acknowledge the tungurong people who are the people for this part of the world where I'm sitting tonight. So Neil, if you could pass on those good regards to all of the aunties, you know them, Rochelle, Nisi, uh, Greta, etc. Look, thanks. I was asked to talk about regions, and I think this is a really timely conversation for us. So I'm going to talk about what we're doing here in North East Victoria. And I think it would be fabulous to have what Friends of the Earth is doing circulating out and percolating out to what we're doing here. So I'll tell you what we're doing and invite you to be part of what we are regarding as our conversation around climate justice and uh, community energy. Some years ago now, 2015, we had our very first Euroa Environment Series and Lee Yu, in fact, came up to that. And I really would like to acknowledge Friends of the Earth for the way in which you've reached out to communities that are not necessarily your immediate um, besties. And it was great to have your people come up and be part of what we were doing. That Euroa Environment Series in 2015 has never been forgotten by the people in this town or this region, and they came from all over. They came from Seymour and Adura. They came down from Wangaratta and they came up from Mansfield. And that was because people were interested in what we were talking about and it ranged from superannuation and climate change to the Paris talks to what was happening with the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. That um, that meeting was, or those meetings were held over 2015 and we finished up with a meeting about culture and community and climate and Aunty Rochelle Patton was one of the people who spoke at that last meeting in 2016. Since then, we've come back together as a small community with a, with a vital interest in what we do about energy because we see energy as one of the real justice issues for the regions. We're on the end of the grid here in Euroa. We've had diesel generators in the Euroa showgrounds for decades now, just about making it possible for this community to get power when it's a 45-degree day. And we think that it's time that we had batteries instead of diesel generators. And what we've done is we've thought about how pumped hydro energy storage might work. We put together a big submission about that to Lily D'Ambrosio and got some grant money to ask an an expert to give us some appraisal of whether that was possible. It's certainly possible. It's uh, costly and we don't own the water assets. But as a community, we didn't let that dissuade us from having a red hot go at talking about that issue. So the first thing I would say is ambition is absolutely critical to everything you want to do. And you already know that. Our ambition in relation to pumped hydro energy storage was that we wanted to see what we could do, and we wanted to do it even when we didn't own the assets. What we did out of that was we learnt how to go about getting grants, and we learnt that there was money out there, and we learnt that there was a sub-national government that was interested in helping us do the things we saw we needed to do, and that, of course, is a lesson that FOE has learnt over time, and you know it very, very well from all the work you do with communities. And that's led to us here in Northeast Victoria joining the other 11 community energy groups. There are 11 out here in Northeast Victoria. and our community energy group has got a significant grant from the current government here in Victoria to put together a community microgrid in Euroa. And that microgrid involves business and it involves people in housing and some people in social housing. We're only halfway through the delivery of that grant and we'll be appraised at the end of it. There'll be a proper audit and we'll know how we went. But what I want to share is this. It's important for going out to the regions to take the message there, but understand that people have their own issues and they have places where they want action taken. So for instance, here we have businesses that are paying a lot of money for their energy But we had to convince them that solar panels was the way to go, that a microgrid was something they could do, that batteries were some of the answer, and that they could be part of the challenges or meeting the challenges. And it's taken a bit of doing that we've got good people in our community group who know the business community. So the next thing I would like to say about what we need to do in the regions is know the community. Do what the anthropologists say, which is study up the community. When you're engaged in advocacy or campaigning, you know that there's no point in visiting a politician unless you know what their co-benefit spells are. And here for us, the co-benefit for climate action and for dealing with the energy crisis was to say to people, there will be some economic uh, benefits to you and they will play out in your business. The pandemic makes all of this that much more difficult, but it also presents us with an extraordinary opportunity because people have had to get smart about a range of things they didn't need to worry about before. Amongst them are things like this, doing digital technology link-ups, and we've all got much better at it. We just held something last night and the night before about the council wanting to increase rates with uh, digital technology, Zoom technology. So we've all got much better at what we need to see done. And as friends of the earth, you know that those are the messages that people want to see playing out in the conversations around climate justice, the ones that ring their bells. So what I would be saying about the regions is this, that there is an appetite out here. We recently put on our front fence a big sign saying climate emergency, everyone's responsibility, and we're told by all our our mates that someone would vandalise it. It hasn't happened. And a number of people have gone past our front fence and said they really think that that's an appropriate sign to have in the small country town of Yaroa because it's a really critical issue. So what I would be saying to you about the regions is there is that appetite we don't need to be frightened about what people are going to say or do in response to being active about getting better climate outcomes. And those climate outcomes are going to include things like community energy. It's my experience the community is a really powerful ally in everything that you do. And it's one of FOE's really um, significant uh, baselines, I suppose. But the community is a multi headed hydra, and there are lots of people in the community who need the message targeted for the things. That concern them. So that's what I would be saying to you. What I would also like to just say tonight is this, that when talking to people in the regions, you've already made the first step, which is to put out that you want to have regional climate action groups. We would welcome FOE coming up here and being part of our conversations. So, and we know we don't need to get you on the train or in a car to come all the way up to your row. We can now do it this way. We all prefer to look at each other and have a cup of tea, but, or a beer, But we can certainly do what we need to. We meet regularly to consider what's happening with our community energy program here in Euroa, and we're now part of a really important conversation that's coming out of Helen Haynes' office. So you've got an independent in Indi who's taking the view that there needs to be community energy advocacy, and she's just put together a discussion paper. And if you haven't seen it, get onto her website and have a look. And we've been making a contribution to what that discussion paper should do by way of uh, co-design and Helen Haynes sees that as really important. One of the other things about here in the northeast that I'd just like to share with you is this, while we have been notoriously a national party enclave and that's certainly the case in the state seat of Euroa, there's been a lot of work done about participatory democracy in country towns. So Wangaratta for instance had a citizens jury some time ago. The Alpine Shire has done the same thing. We're now having these discussions all over the place about community energy. What happens with those participatory democracy efforts is that once people get involved and realise that their contribution their conversation and their voice is important, they actually learn an extraordinary amount about their own power. It's an enabler, it's an ennobler, making things possible that they didn't think were likely to happen in the past. So there is an appetite. We are certainly aware of what can happen when people participate Friends of the Earth is one of those. With what you're doing here with this launch, and the community here in Euroa with Euroa Energy would like to be part of it. Can I urge you, if you're wanting to know about what we have done here, to just go and have a look at some of the YouTube's we put up on Strathbogie Voices YouTube site, or have a look at our Twitter feed on Strathbogie Inc. or the Euroa Energy uh, Twitter feed. We've also got Facebook feed. And can I also say that it's important not to leave some of the other initiatives out. So, for instance, we currently have a digital click and collect which is replaced for the time being the farmer's market that couldn't meet, and we've got many local producers from all over the northeast providing uh, uh, vegetables, meat, uh, olive oil, even beer, and people are buying it through a click and collect digital distribution centre at one of the local logistics firms, Shirley Saywells, Brady and Kibble, and we've also got other things happening which are part of a general range of sustainability activities, including the recent, we got a recent grant to continue our wash station for festivals. And we've been holding some twilight markets up here over the last six years, where eventually we decided that we didn't want any waste and we washed everybody's dishes because we bought them at the op shops. And we did it with our wash station. And now that wash station is actually going to be funded to the tune of $5,000. Bridget McKenzie provided the, uh, the grant money, but Helen Haynes was the person who told us the grant was available. And we said to Helen that we're very, very grateful to that. So there's a heap of things that can be done. They don't all appear immediately to be climate action, but they are part of the sustainability conversation and you'll find people are keen to be involved in it. I hope I've come in under time.
0: Thank you so much, Kate um it's so wonderful to hear from you and um thank you for giving us that regional perspective we know that we can't get to know them when we're just in our offices in the city um and i think that's pretty much the first thing i learned when i joined foe and was immediately taken out all over the state to meet the gas field free communities fighting to keep fracking out of victoria the community energy groups you mentioned which are exactly the kind of innovation we want to see to democratise our energy system um, and our other shared resources.
1: It is true that you can't get to know people because you are coming up from Melbourne but people are very generous and that's my experience of Aboriginal people. People are extraordinarily generous if they think that you've shown an interest and that's what Friends of the Earth is doing and it's been really remarkable and it's been remarked by people that they think that that's a powerful indication of the getting to better outcomes that you're interested in. So you might not know everybody and you might not know their birth dates or their blood types, but you know a lot of other things.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, and it's great that we can still do this kind of connecting on Zoom anyway, um, and in lots of other ways. Our next speaker, Neil Morris. Neil Morris is a Yorta Yorta person and artist who uses his platform with Project Dreaming Now to raise awareness of the ongoing injustices that First Nations people are subjected to. And Neil's work extends out into community-based action with a strong environmental and Indigenous sovereignty focus, as well as self-determination and decolonisation we're so lucky to have you here tonight, Neil. Um, and, yeah, take it away.
5: Thank you again, Anna. Uh, thank you, Fo, for putting this event together tonight. It's something I value is the contribution of community from all levels of community, from all our walks of life, having an understanding, having information and being informed about certainly the First Nations experience and the first nations perspectives in relation to not only environmental impacts and environmental futures but also the broader spectrum the indigenous journey but also the indigenous present as well and so in saying that i do want to acknowledge that it is an incredible day to reflect on to think about kawiki aka eddie mabo um, on this day, on Marbo Day. And I want to acknowledge the incredible work that he's done uh, historically for the rights of First Nations people to go forth with a challenge to the notion of Terranullius so rigorously and vigorously was such a heroic a journey that he went through. The journey that he went through was also and is also an ongoing one that my people, the Yorta Yorta, know very well. We went for a native title claim uh, many years ago and it was not successful. The understanding and the appreciation of the native title uh, legislation is certainly one since that point in time that perspectives about it have evolved and they look uh, variedly different. But at the time it was a big thrust And it was a thrust ultimately about the empowerment of my people, the Yorta Yorta in the management and the empowerment over uh, the ability to connect to and help our country to prosper and ultimately our people to prosper. And doing that in respect of our ancestors and the amazing work that they did before us, such as Uncle Doug Nichols, Auntie Marge Tucker, Uncle William Cooper, and so many others. And this story is certainly a story that's echoed across this whole land. It's echoed across uh, so-called Victoria, across all Indigenous nations. The fight for empowerment, the fight for self-determination, and as many are finding their voice within currently, including Yorta Yorta people, the fight for sovereignty, the fight to not necessarily ask for a seat at the table to participate in decision making, but to be the governor of the table to determine decisions that are necessary and important for the country that our people have been custodians of for thousands and thousands of years. And so here we are, we're in a very interesting moment in history. We have 25 million plus people now living in so-called Australia and there is a journey that with First Nations people as a minority population of 3% of the overall population, it is like going up against a tidal wave to do all the work yourself. And so we are here in a moment in time where allyship is crucial as well. And this is where you all come into the picture to understand what it is you can do to support the First Nations position, which ultimately in supporting the First Nations position I always say that you're supporting the greatest opportunity for survival for yourself and your families as well in enabling our practices which are known to work for thousands of years successfully and also going on a journey where maybe there can be new practices born that are done out of collaboration between First Nations people and others. But from a First Nations perspective, having that opportunity to lead these decisions that are made, this is something that is crucial. And in order to have a successful climate future, for me, we must have First Nations leadership as absolutely central. And as Kate suggested in her talk, and Kate is a great ally of my people, and I appreciate the work that she's done with elders from my community historically as well, is that, if you empower a First Nations person to lead, there's a good chance we're going to ask other people what their perspectives are and how they might think that that could be a value. But first, we need to be enabled to be self-determined to take leadership roles as sovereign peoples connected to this land with a cultural responsibility to upholding the protection and the preservation and the enhancement of country just as much in 2020 as prior to 1788. So I'm just going to wrap up with a few things that I wrote down as a few notes as well, uh, additional to what I've just said. Um, So certainly empowering First Nations land management practices is absolutely crucial. Most of you listening have probably been familiar with talk around Indigenous fire practices and certainly with the catastrophic fires that we had this last summer, um, it's certainly Um, It's beyond pressing and there's evidences there of First Nations burning practices that can mitigate the challenges that are present of climate issues and it can lead to uh, better results for the future, better opportunity for the future, uh, for us to survive, because ultimately what we're talking about here is survival. Supporting economic development for First Nations people in a variety of uh, aspects of land management in a variety of aspects of green energy uh, business platforms as well, understanding that whatever activity is going on within the environmental uh, management spaces and the green energy spaces and climate uh, future spaces that First Nations leadership is crucial, whether that's out on country or whether that's within big business that might be happening in the city that connects back to First Nations land management elevating First Nations voices within your existing organisations, creating that space, resourcing that space, so that there can be decisions made that have been done in a manner which is giving greatest opportunity for our thorough strategies to be put together from First Nations people. That's a key activity. And um, First Nations research is another one. Supporting First Nations research uh, not only to demonstrate how climate change um, has impacted on things, which is crucial. It is really important to get the message out there that climate change has impacted on uh, very sensitive species, important species. For my people, an example of that is Bayadera, the long-necked turtle. There are so many other species that have been impacted that are sacred species for our people by climate change. It's important to document that. It's important to understand that there's also mourning attached to that. And with these collecting mourning activities, we create opportunities as well, create opportunities for discussion, create opportunities for connection for all of us to understand and to mourn thoroughly, to become more galvanised through these processes, to be more vigorous in our approaches towards working in these spaces, moving into the future. And, um, you know, there's other ones such as our water use, thinking about the use of water currently, how much of that water is being enabled and empowered um, to go into the hands of First Nations people to develop our strategies around climate, um, whether that's the development of, of First Nations business initiatives, but it could relate to another kind of economic enterprise for First Nations people, which leads to inspiring activity. This is something to be remembered is the inspiring land that we live on, the inspiring stories that we live on and there are so many ways that first Nations story can be captured and can be empowered to be developed and to envelop us as a broader society to help us keep a clear vision for the future and a clear understanding of this ancient powerful sacred place that we stand upon so i'm going to wrap it up there i've touched on a few things and hopefully i more than anything that leaves you with a bit of food for thought it helps you to consider a couple of different options in how you can think about your contributions uh, to these documents that are going to be pitched to the state government a lot of great work is being done in this space already but um we can certainly have more work being done and the more people have a collective understanding of what their contribution can be to supporting first nation self-determination and first nation sovereignty it's certainly a positive thing for all of us so again uh, thank you for, for enabling me the opportunity to share some words today, and I really look forward to all of the work that is going to go into this documentation, and certainly uh, the ongoing uh, work between First Nations groups and FO. and thank you to them for their incredible solidarity that has been uh, non-flinching for countless years. We are very grateful for that as Yorta Yorta people, as our other mob, uh, no doubt, that have done incredible things with FOE. Uh, thank you, everyone, and thank you, Anna, as well, for facilitating tonight.
0: Thank you so much, Neil, um, for that presentation and for um, joining us to talk tonight about this really important issue. It's so wonderful to have you here and, um, yeah, pro- provide like a, a lot of those uh, ways of thinking about um, even like the things like the the resources and elements Um of this land like the like the water that is still, for the most part, um not controlled by First Nations people and um and as we see for the most part not being utilized in a way that um is allowing us to continue living in a sustainable way. Um and yeah, I'd just like to acknowledge, of course, that while the global media have been gripped lately by the stories of um horrific police brutality in the United States, we have to remember that um here we have our own history and ongoing happenings of that um, and that we must centre First Nations uh, people's voices in these conversations about how we tackle climate change because they are already one of the hardest groups being hit. Um, And yeah, you've just really made me think about how our Western worldview of treating the earth as both like a mine and a dumping ground historically um, is, you know, that's what's got us to the crisis that we're in and um it's going to take a lot more than just policy changes and um and the like to get us out of that it actually involves us um taking a step back and being humble and acknowledging the need for fundamentally different world views um as have existed for tens of thousands of years already so thank you so much um for, for joining us tonight and giving us um your perspectives on this We um, we can't wait to work with you in the coming months. And finally, I would like to introduce our last guest speaker for the night, Mark Oag. Mark Oag is Principal Advisor on Climate and Energy at the Australia Institute. And he was a former director at Beyond Zero Emissions, which has conducted a similar community sourced climate action plan as we're aiming to do now with the People's Climate Strategy. Um, Mark also joined us at a forum, maybe a month ago, on um, moratorium on onshore gas being removed in Victoria to give his insights on that. Um, So we're really grateful to have you join us again tonight. Take it away.
6: And I'd like to also acknowledge the traditional owners past and present who, of course, uh, never ceded sovereignty. Um, thanks heaps Anna and Lee and everyone who organised it, it's always great to um, to speak to people at Friends of the Earth and it's great to see such a big turnout. So uh, Lee asked me to speak about the, um, the Zero Carbon Australia project that we did with Beyond Zero Emissions many years ago now, I think we started it about 12 years ago and um, yeah because it's it's a bit different to what you're doing but I think there's Um, maybe some uh, parallels and and insights that that hopefully will be helpful with um, the project, the great project that you guys are taking on um, at the moment, uh, which which I really, which I fully support. I think it's fantastic. Back in 2008, I was uh, working with Beyond Zero Emissions. But basically, we started with a problem. The problem was that we were aware that there was this massive impending climate crisis and at the same time, governments and industry and people who were, you know, basically running the country were doing absolutely nothing about it. But in fact, worse than that, they, worse than doing nothing about it, they they're actually entrenching the problem, entrenching the kind of activities and industries that were causing the problem in the first place. So, um, and the reason that they were doing this was that was was vested interest you know a few big companies make uh billions and billions of dollars uh, every year out of um you know these various activities which include coal and gas mining or um or big heavy polluting industries yeah when when you've got billions of dollars riding on it uh they can employ a whole lot of people to run massive pr campaigns and lobby governments and and basically sort of um capture our, our democracy if you like to keep doing what they're doing despite the, the clear danger that that's causing. So the way we approached the problem was basically to tell a story. And that story was in response to the story government and industry were putting. And we we sort of boiled down their story to what we used to refer to as the can't do story. So the story, you know, everyone knew how bad climate change was, but their story was, well, yes, it is terrible, but we can't really do anything about it because um, you know renewable energy can't uh, provide the power and it's um, even if it can it's just really hard and too expensive so um, you know we can't do anything so let's put it off um, till down the track which is kind of what's happened anyway I, I guess so we decided to counter that with what we used to refer to as the can do story and that story had kind of two elements to it and the first element was um, was just the the was basically an empowering story about what we can do. That Yes, we can actually act decisively on climate change and we can win, um, that we have all the solutions available to us now. We've got renewable energy, we've got um, all of these commercially available, ready to go technologies and we can roll it out and we can actually um, deal decisively with this problem and, um, and uh, make a huge difference to the well-being of everybody in Australia and everybody in the world so a kind of a, an empowering um what we referred to as can do story and the uh the way we so the, the trick is you know you can kind of tell whatever story you like but you have to have a way of telling it and the way we told it was by um by articulating a really kind of concrete plan about it, so really describing in detail, you know, how many wind turbines, how many solar panels, how many jobs, um, you know, how many mirrors, and doing all the energy modelling and all of that kind of thing to really sort of describe in a very concrete way um, a path forward. And back then, that really didn't exist, so it was kind of putting a story out there that people could actually. Um, So, yes, there's a course of action that we could actually uh, run with and and actually save this really uh, dire situation. And to do that, we recruited a whole bunch of basically engineers and some people who worked in science, mostly young people, but not entirely. So people with the actual expertise. And we set up a big project where we had a wiki page and we basically had a big table of contents and that. Told the story we wanted to tell, and people with expertise worked on specific areas that they had expertise in, whether it was energy modelling or electric vehicles or solar power or wind power and all of those kinds of things. And we put together the Zero Carbon Australia Plan, uh, which we released in 2010. And it's all a bit in the distant past now, but it was actually a really kind of important thing because. Until that, the idea of 100% renewable energy or zero emissions wasn't really out there. Like back in those days, people were talking about like a 20% cut in emissions and that kind of thing. So we really, we basically were trying to move the Overton window, if you like, from kind of a dismal ambition of 20%, which really wouldn't make any difference anyway, to doing 100% and acting decisively and actually um, having a shot at saving the planet. So, uh, and, and, and as Lee was saying before, you know, something that is actually in proportion to the scale of the problem, to propose something that would actually solve the problem. And that's one of the things I think is really key. You've got to be really talking about something that will solve, actually solve the problem. Because if you don't, um, the Overton window is way back on the other side of the, in the kind of can't do uh, zone. And, um, and you won't inspire anyone. You can only inspire people if you're if you're proposing something on a scale that will solve the problem. But a big part of the story, and I think this is where it's kind of relevant to maybe what you're doing, is that an important part of the story was the way we did it. So we got ordinary people, they were ordinary people, you know, engineers and scientists and people who worked in government and industry. So people with with a degree of expertise. And, and this expertise, you know, we needed that for the kind of work we're doing. So that might not be necessary for what, what you're doing. You know, we we just needed that to to because we were doing such a kind of a technical thing on one level. Even though the whole thing was about telling a story, it was quite technical and it had to be a compelling and real story. The fact that we got ordinary people and that they got on with it themselves allowed us to tell the story of, Governments in industry are not doing anything about this. They're failing and they're actually blocking it. So ordinary people, engineers, scientists, people who work in industry, make stuff happening, are actually getting together and putting together a plan about um, how we can actually get on and and fight climate change. And that story in itself worked really, really well. And just a, a quick funny story that, Happened. So Matt Wright, who I was work, working with on at the time, he's, a, he's an absolute genius and without him none of this would have actually been possible. We had a first shot at this where we hadn't really got the program together and didn't have enough people working on it and, and so our first draft of the Zero Carbon Australia Plan was um, uh, pretty disastrous and a bit embarrassing. And um, anyway, Matt uh, leaked it to a journalist, Paddy Manning, at the time and Paddy wrote an article about it, telling that story about all these engineers coming together and um, to to put together this report. And he put it in the, he published it in the Business Age. And the uh, and so it read really well. And uh, our first major donor read it and called up the next day and gave us 20 grand. And that kind of kicked us off in terms of funding and, and really made so much more possible. But the funny thing was that I was furious with Matt for leaking it because the thing was so embarrassing that, you know, had Patty ever actually opened it and read it, um, it would have sunk us right from the start. But anyway, that was sometimes you've got to be uh, you've got to be bold about these things. So, but what I'm trying to say is the is the story about what we were doing and the way we were doing it with community involvement, with ordinary people getting on and doing stuff, was a powerful story that really kind of pushed us along. And over time, that worked super well because we got, we drew in um, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. Many of them were like these young engineers who then, who were kind of, you know, real true believers in this stuff, and then went out to work in industry and government and actually have an influence in all of those fields. Um, We also had, um, we trained up people all over Australia to do talks. We did many hundreds of talks around Australia. In Sydney, Malcolm Turnbull launched it. In Brisbane, um, the then Premier, Anna Bligh launched it. So it had a huge amount of um, impact, I think, at the time, and it got a huge amount of media, largely due to a very talented young uh, media guy we had on board at the time, Lee Eubank, who uh, really smashed with the media for years on that. And I think it really... Probably even international just got the idea out there that, you know, you could, you know, these ideas around 100% renewable energy and zero emissions um, and all of that kind of thing. It certainly played a a big part in that.
0: Thank you, Mark. Great to have you with us again on one of these online forums. And um, thank you for reminding us of the power of the can-do story, Um, the the leaps that we've seen in the last 10 years. Renewable energy innovation and um, climate solutions across the board really um, show that we can actually get the work that we need to do done with the will, Um, and it is often the political will that is just holding us back. And conveniently, those who push the can't do line amazingly almost always tend to have reasons involving a lot of money that make it convenient not to do anything. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's awesome to hear about the zero carbon plan um and how it worked in in a way that like we really want to replicate, minus the maybe accidentally leaking the plan to the age <laughs> early. That, that basically that fundamental um, involving of the community in the big solution is really what we want to do. When, when I was a kid, the line was always like, oh, well, you know, citizens can just put their recycling out and save water and then leave it up to like us to fix the problem or not. Um, and yeah, I like as we know that's that's just not how real change happens and we need um everybody to be in the tent on this working together in an accessible way so thank you so much for um telling us your success story <laughs> of that and finally from Mark Og to Marco I've got um our final speaker for tonight Marco is a rising star of the climate movement We're super lucky to have him in the Act on Climate Collective. Marco gained a reputation for his passion and commitment to climate justice and won the respect of people of all ages um, when you might have seen him on the TV screen asking questions on ABC's Q&A program a couple of years ago. And today he's coming to your computer screen to give us a rundown of the timeline of how this climate strategy is gonna work over the next couple of months and the phases that we'll go through. So I'll hand it over to you, Marco.
4: Thanks, and thanks so much for all the speakers so far. It's been really amazing. And firstly, I would like to acknowledge that I'm um, speaking here from the lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin nation and pay respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Yeah, the People's Climate Strategy, it's kind of um, divided into five phases. Um, First being outreach and recruitment, as mentioned by the previous speakers, really, this is coming from the people, it's coming from the community. And that means we need to get community on board and the people on board. So that's a really big phase and we really need people to jump in and start reaching out and recruiting in their communities. The next phase is the climate impacts and problems. So that's looking at the current impacts that are being faced and the high emitting sectors and how and identifying them so that we can move to the next phase, which is the solutions. Then putting the plan together is obviously a big phase again, um, involving a lot of brainstorming, creative decisions, making and amongst communities and then obviously making it reality is the most important. Um so it's gonna be huge. It's great to see so many people here.
0: Beautiful. Thank you, Marco, so much for showing us the grand plan. And so Marco's given us a rundown of like the big thematic stages of the timeline of this strategy. Um, We have some immediate next steps as part of that to kick it all off, which I'm going to throw back to Lee and Marco to outline um, so that we can leave you all here with um, something to do straight away and um, get everyone involved. So I'll just pass it back to you two to talk us through that.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much, Anna, and thanks, Marco. It's so good to have um, the next generation of climate campaigners in the team and um, skilling up for the, the long journey ahead yeah firstly you would have seen a few of links go through the, the chat of the zoom so firstly we do need to do a bit of a recruitment drive so we're giving it in, um, from now until friday the 12th of june and um, the registration process is really simple it's a very short you know, five-question survey just to help us understand whereabouts in Victoria uh, you're located and um, identify the regional working group that you can participate in. And we also want to understand, like, what are your skills and interests and so on. So a link is on the screen now, but you'll find it in the Zoom chat as well. Secondly, uh, next week, we're very fortunate to have a little bit of a... um, a scene-setting exercise for us. Friends of the Earth commissioned the University of Melbourne to do some analysis on emissions reductions and, you know, where they think emissions reductions can be achieved across the whole economy. So not just energy, but also looking at transport and agriculture um, and industrial processes. So next Wednesday, um, there will be an online forum where Dylan McConnell and the Climate and Energy College will present that modelling and that will really kind of set the scene for what we can do at the local level. Give us a little bit of a clue about where we should be looking to find emissions cuts. Third, you know, we're a grassroots group. We run on the smell of an empty muesli bar wrapper. I often, I used to say we run on the smell of an oily rag, but it was too fossil fuel intensive for us. So we've decarbonised our cheeky pitch. But yeah, it is uh, end of financial year. You know, We've managed to, to scrap together enough money to have Anna on deck one day a week, and we'd love to keep her on uh, and you know, provide more support for Anna so that the next generation of campaigners can grow and thrive. So you know, your donations will actually be going to a really good cause, and we welcome those. And lastly, the Acton Climate Collective we meet, um, we meet every Monday, pre-COVID. We used to meet in the Yami Lester room at Friends of the Earth um, and do our face-to-face meetings. Um, but until we get the, the all clear from the Chief Medical Officer, you know, we will be doing the meetings via Zoom, um, but we always welcome people to join. If you would like to join us, we meet every 6 p.m. on Mondays, and you can send me an email and I'll make sure that you get the Zoom link. So there's some immediate next steps. And, yeah, you know, if we're going to have impact, if we're going to influence the state government's climate strategy, the first that will ever occur in Victoria, it'll set the scene for the next 25 years' worth of climate strategies. We are going to need a lot of people involved. We're going to need to demonstrate um, a high level of community involvement. And, um, yeah, that's how we will have impact. So I hope people join us on this um, on this journey.
3: Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Possible where you can support us directly. In the show notes of this episode or from our website, thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times.
0: The Climactic Collective